Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, and happy Friday. Apologies that we weren't able to get this out on Wednesday like we normally do, but this week, Pastor Wilson has been teaching for the Master of Fine Arts degree at New St. Andrews. If you've ever thought about attending something like that, check it out at nsa.edu, and it is a distance program, so that should help a lot of you with full-time schedules. But if that won't work for you, I wanted to draw your attention to Doug's book, Wordsmithy. Wordsmithy is for writers of every sort, whether experienced veterans, still just hoping, or somewhere in between. This book exhorts writers to explore the world, to read incessantly, to love mechanical helps, to be fine with being lousy for a little while, to learn languages and to keep a commonplace book. Through a series of out-of-the-ordinary lessons, each with its own takeaway points and recommended readings, Douglas Wilson provides indispensable guidance, showing how to develop the writer's craft and the kind of life from which good writing comes. Welcome to the podcast, episode 130. This is the podcast. In case you made a mistake and wandered into the wrong podcast, thinking it was a podcast, no, this is the podcast. Good to have you here. So, the thing that's on my mind uh, just now is um, Pete Buttigieg as uh, the Lord's little pop quiz for moderate leftist evangelicals. Um, Think of, the, think of the people who have drawn themselves up to their full height in order to rebuke those Christians who voted for Trump or who uh, kind of like what Trump has been doing and are thinking about voting for him in 2020. Mark Galley of Christianity Today uh, made a splash a few weeks ago by talking about how um, evangelical witness has been compromised by Trump's support and so on. I'm not here to talk about the Trump support. I'm talk, I'm, I want to talk here about the contrast. As I uh, record this, uh, New Hampshire has just happened. So there was the Iowa caucuses and then the New Hampshire uh, primary. And Bernie Sanders uh, won both of them in the popular vote. And uh, Buttigieg won Iowa after much dithering and toing and froing and much consternation. But uh, he came out ahead uh, with the delegates. And so right now, uh, Buttigieg is one delegate ahead of Sanders, with Sanders having won the popular vote in both places. So in real terms, Sanders is in first place. And there are a lot of primaries to go. And, and you know, so we're early yet, right? But Buttigieg is not someone that we can just sort of cross off the list. So after the first two, a number of the long-shot candidates, um, some of whom we didn't even know were candidates, right, dropped out. They, okay, uh, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. So a number of the people who uh, finished last or near the bottom are gone, and Pete Buttigieg is not among them, all right? Now, let's take as a, as a given the fact that the Donald Trump has not lived his life as a moral man. 
he has he obviously has his code, but um, pirate chieftains have their code too. So, um, according to the standards of Scripture, particularly when it comes to sexual morals, Trump has not lived his life as a moral man. Right? That's uh, acknowledged, given. Yes, uh, Trump has been an adulterer uh, various times. Yes, he's likely been in all kinds of escapades and problems and of, of a heterosexual nature, but no less against the law of God for all that. And the morally indignant leftist evangelicals, the people who, who basically want an excuse not to have to support someone on the right, and they can point to this sort of misbehavior, um, have been very indignant about the broad support of Trump among evangelicals, particularly uh, among, I think the most recent figure I saw was among white evangelicals. Uh, the level of support was 81% uh, voted for Trump. And so basically, white evangelicals are to the Republican Party uh, what blacks are to the Democratic Party, a basic base constituency, right? Without them, Trump uh, could not have won. And because they uh, could not handle the prospect of Hillary Clinton being the president, and they wanted um, uh, conservative judges appointed to the federal courts, and because, you know, all the becauses, they threw their lot in with um, Donald Trump and have been severely upbraided simply and solely on the grounds of personal morality. Personal morality counts. Now, this is the setup. What will all those people do when Pete Buttigieg gets the nomination, if he gets the nomination? I think this is the Lord's little pop quiz, the Lord's little test. All right. You've been very indignant for low these, uh, these four years about sexual morality and wanting a, an upstanding man in the White House who is not being sexually immoral. And Pete Buttigieg is openly homosexual, married to his partner. So there they are, a um, couple of guys kissing, on, you know, kissing for the camera. And, uh, well, first on a side, I think um, everybody is way underestimating the impact that that's going to have with all sorts of voters. Um, in other words, there, there are things that you are not willing to say publicly because of how certain orthodoxies are promulgated with a club these days. Um, but when you're in the privacy of the voting booth, when you, uh, uh, when you are in there by yourself and you're thinking about that kiss, you go, ah, it's the ick factor, right? So there, I, I think that people are way underestimating the impact of that sort of thing. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward to how... The, more, the people who are morally indignant about sexual morality and presidential candidates and who've been leveling that indignation in Trump's direction for uh, the last few years, how they're going to handle Pete Buttigieg if he gets the nomination. Are they going to apply the same standard? Are they going to say a man in an open homosexual relationship, and no, you can't call it marriage. It's not same-sex marriage. It's same-sex mirage. It's not a marriage. He's not married. You can't be married that way. There's no such thing. So what will they do? 
Okay, will they drop their argument against Trump supporters, or will they quietly uh, tiptoe off stage, hoping that we don't remember? We are continuing on with our podcast, episode 130. Uh, this is our section, Hamartiology, where we are studying the different words in the Greek New Testament for various sins. The next word we're going to consider is ostakeo, ostakeo. In some places, it's rendered as erred, and in another, as swerved. In the first place, where we will examine this word, Paul is telling Timothy to stay away from posers. He says to avoid profane and vain babbling, that's in 1 Timothy 6.20, the kind of thing that some people falsely call science or knowledge. And then he says this in the next verse, 1 Timothy 6.21, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. So, concerning the faith, some have erred. So, go in for a lot of vain and ostensibly learned chatter. To go in for that is to err concerning the faith. You can't clutter up your heart and mind with that kind of stuff and still have room for Christ in there. This kind of babbling does have content. In 2 Timothy 2.18, it says, Who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. So, Paul says here that some people have erred concerning the truth. Notice that erring has a destination or object in view, and the destination or object is, is one that is missed. In the first passage, they err concerning the faith, and here, concerning the truth. So, as they are approaching the faith, they veer off. As they're approaching the truth, they veer off. In the first chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul is talking about men who want to set up shop as teachers of the law, but who do not know what they're talking about. Here, the translators of the KJV say that these inept teachers have swerved into an empty clatter. It says in 1 Timothy 1.6, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. So they've swerved, and they've swerved into jangling. So if you put all this together, they err concerning the faith, they err concerning the truth, they fall short or they veer off or they don't approach it. And what they do approach is vain jangling. So what do you think of? What should you think of when you think of the word ostacale? You should think swerve, veer, skid, fishtail, slide, and any number of other unattractive verbs. Continuing on with uh, podcast episode 130, um, here's our book review section. I want to commend to you this, this time around, I want to commend to you John Frame's book, uh, his systematic theology, his systematic theology. Now, as it happens, I am uh, listening to this on audio. Uh, a friend of mine had listened to it, um, was listening to it, and uh, commended it to us and said, oh, this is really good. This is really good. So I got it. Now, uh, fair warning. It's, this is a systematic theology. And so uh, when I'm listening to it, it's uh, like 50 hours. Um, and it's all ones and zeros. It doesn't weigh anything. But all that information is there. And uh, so Moscow is a little town. So when I listen to a book, uh, it's in my truck in between, you know, 
home and work and going here and there and running out to lunch, doing that sort of thing. So I, I listened to books in three-minute increments. And, um, or when I walk from the office over to the post office, I've got an, got an earbud and I, I put it in and listen to it that way. And, um, and normally I get through a, uh, a normal-sized book in about a week. And th- this one's going to take me a month. And it is richly rewarding. Basically, systematic theologies done the way they ought to be done are wonderful devotional material. You are really likely to learn things that you've never even thought of before. You're really likely to have questions answered that you didn't know you had or didn't have or realize you ought to have had. Um, and, and if you if you listen to a systematic theology, you're working through all the basics of the faith. So a, a systematic theology done right, as I think Frame uh, does it right in this book, is you work through God, man, sin, salvation, uh, the nature of revelation, how God gets his word to us. And uh, he writes uh, clearly. He writes uh, effectively. He uh, He's He's operating from the middle of the Reformed tradition, but he's not slavishly following um, a particular teacher. He's just he's well read in the tradition. He engages with all the major questions, and he does so in a in a way that is uh, just very practical and Christ honoring. and And uh, I would encourage you, particularly uh, pastors, to uh, give it a listen or give it a read. Oftentimes, systematic theologies or books like this are in every pastor's office, but they're there as something of a, like a resource or a reference book. If something comes up, you can look it up and read the three pages on this issue or that issue. Uh, but as it also happens in my, uh, uh, in my reading, uh, reading in the morning on my Kindle, I've, I've got... Uh, I've got real books that I'm re- working through, a set of real books that I work through. I've got a set of Kindle uh, books that I'm working through, and I'll throw in there any other electronic books uh, like on my Logos Bible software. And in my Logos Bible software, I'm working through Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. And that was written in another era, but it, it has the same, it's, it's the same kind of blessing that frames Systematic Theology has. Only frames is... Uh, more up-to-date, more current, and, and more in the language of our day. So um, if, if, you have, uh, you know, if you have a lot of time on the road, or if you're willing to cut it up in little three-minute chunks like I do, uh, it's just really encouraging, really edifying. So John Frame's Systematic Theology.